Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. My guest today is Dr. Gregory Gondway, an assistant professor of journalism studies at California State University, San Bernardino and a Harvard Visiting Scholar with the Institute for Rebooting Social Media at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. In today's episode, we learn about Gregory's research on how journalists in sub-Saharan Africa are engaging with generative AI and discuss in detail the issue of stereotypes perpetuated through generative AI models, which position the global South at a disadvantage. Greg, welcome to Newsroom Robots. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Greg, I'm really excited to have you because your research offers a fresh perspective on AI and journalism and a much-needed perspective, really, on how journalists in sub-Saharan Africa are engaging with generative AI and tools like ChatGPT. And you've just published a journal article on ChatGPT and the Global South. And so I want to start off there by delving deeper into your research could you give me an overview, really, of what your research is and what led you to explore this particular topic? Thank you. Yeah. So before I get into that or before we delve into the topic at hand, I would like to provide an explanation regarding the rationale behind utilizing the term sub-Sahara Africa. You know, I know most people are not comfortable with that, not just in the West, but even in Africa. Say so Africa is not a country. Sub-Sahara is too huge to be studied. 
it is important to acknowledge that we are individuals who contest such labels, or there are individuals that contest such labels due to the well-known controversy surrounding the notion that Africa is not a country. But it's crucial to actually emphasize this should not hinder us from studying systems. When we study Africa, or when personally I study, say, Sub-Saharan Africa, I'm not studying a particular continent, I'm studying systems. So, like, given our history, given the colonial aspect of, say, Africa, there are many characteristics that we share in terms of systems. So our media, for example, in the in sub-Saharan Africa is characterized by the British media. There are many elements that we can point to that are similar, you know, in different countries. And so when I actually approach the topic in that manner, it's not that I'm undermining the differences that exist around different countries. And if, let's say, we had to follow the same logic, we'd probably not even study a country. You know, I give an example of... Uh, for example, the distinctions that are there in Kenya, you have the Maasai who are totally different from uh, the Luo, nor the Kikuyu. And that will be the same, let's say, in Brazil, where you have the Fevera and the other groups. India is the same. So if, let's say, we are that strict, then we cannot study any country at all. So I have to acknowledge that I do understand, but what I'm actually studying is the systems. Now, going back to the question, uh, you know, the motivation that I had was, one, the speed of, you know, the internet itself. Five, ten years ago, this would not have been the conversation in Africa. You know, like we had to wait. Let's say the internet comes in, you know, it takes 10, 20 years before it actually gets to Africa or to the global south. So most of the issues we're facing, though different, were kind of similar to the issues that the West had earlier faced. So we actually knew the answers to those. But today it's different, you know, like uh, generative AI or chat GDP3 became a buzzword in uh, around November, September, November, I think. And by December, Africans were already engaging with generative AI. They were part of that. And I think there are a lot of repercussions surrounding that, given the fact that we are, you know, engaging with it at the same time as the West that are still grappling with how to use it. And it becomes more challenging in Africa because we are we are not we do not participate in the creative of such you know tools. So the question is, we just consumers, we not creators of such. And I think that motivated me, especially in the context of journalism, uh, also given the debate surrounding generative AI. You know, as you remember, there was there were questions of misinformation, questions of plagiarism, questions of bias, and I wanted to take a global South perspective. I know that is a huge word, but you know, I wanted to take a perspective of also bringing the global South. What challenges are they facing given the current generative AI? So that in general was kind of my uh, motivation to pursuing the topic. And could you start off by really describing the current news media landscape in the countries that you researched? You looked, you mentioned a lot of issues related to internet penetration and how that would affect the lack of data, databases that these chat GPT and generative AI chatbots were built upon. So could you talk more about that and how are journalists really using chat GPT, keeping all of that in mind? Yeah, so my my. Pilot study, I've been studying Africa. I know people would say, again, don't study Africa. But, you know, I've been doing research in different parts of Africa for several years now. And my experience has been that, you know, the media system, if let's say we delve deeper into it, kind of still mirrors the Western media. 
You know, we there have been attempts to actually Africanize the media, but that's very difficult. You know, because one, the education system is still Western. You know, we don't have, at least in African countries that I've seen, we don't have books that are written by African scholars in the curriculum. You know, we still use uh, Melvin Mencher, which is American. We still use books that are written in the in the UK, and those inform who we are. And when it comes to technology, when we go into the field, we use the Western technology. You know, so we have to know the way in which, of course, there's the context, which is different, and it kind of shapes how we do most of the things. But even with the local media, you find that most of them are funded either by churches, let's say, if let's say they're Christian, we have the Catholic Church funding this local media. And then also the UK is a big funder of such kind of local media and other NGOs from the United States. So there are many similarities in the media that we study or that we actually can point to, and those pose as hallmarks for how the media is perceived in Africa. Of course, there's the British, and then up there, there's the, the French media. You know, even today, I think, let's say we receive BBC Africa. You know, I know there are African journalists working for that, but it's BBC Africa. We have now the Chinese media, we have uh, Al Jazeera, and all those are the major media outlets. So, yes, and that, that actually justifies, and I feel like it's fair to acknowledge the fact that similarities are there. And when we study systems, we can. That's, I think, in the context of the media that we actually do have. And when it comes to journalists engaging with that, sometimes, you know, they get some or they, are, they benefit from such kind of media. And also they learn specific ideas or ways of actually engaging with technology from such kind of international media. But still, they need to contextualize that in their own environments. Yeah. And you mentioned about moonlighting and the culture of freelance journalists having to also do a lot of other work to support their livelihoods as journalists and this chat GPT being a tool for them. How are they using it? Yes. So, you know, initially, I think it was difficult. If let's say you had to work for two media houses, many of them would have to be there physically. You know, if let's say I'm working for two media outlets, so if I'm a blogger and the other media, it was hard for one to write a story. But today, I think those experienced journalists are, to some extent, leveraging ChatGDP in working out those stories, making it more efficient, not as efficient as it could be. But I think most of them said they use it less for grammar. So they would collect information and it's easy to actually ask ChatGDP to organize your content and write a story. So within maybe three, four hours, they are able to write two or three stories and post them or send them to different media outlets. And about your research specifically, could you talk more about the people that you interviewed and the countries that you were speaking to? Were they mainly a lot of freelance journalists or people working for media houses? So I had both. You know, I, I wish I just focused on a few with the specific characteristics. But I, I looked mostly, I mean, I did a convenient sampling approach where whoever came in, you know, and had certain characteristics, they qualified for my study. So I had people from uh, like the Congo, DR, who are French, you know, uh, and then I had people like from Zambia, from Tanzania, from Uganda, and from uh, Kenya. So those places which gave me journalists, some work for the government media, others work privately in private media outlets. And there are those that have just emerged as bloggers and others, you know, kind of, it's hard to contextualize uh, some media outlets. In Zambia, for example, we have what we call Mwevant Media. This is a media outlet that was started by a young boy 
It's just a Facebook media, and it has become more popular than the government media. But I was also able to actually engage with such kind of journalists, you know, which in general sense, some people would say that's not journalism. But, you know, it is journalism because these kids or whoever they are, they are really contributing to journalism practice, even compared to the government media. And did you see nuances or differences in the way each of them were using ChatGPT? And what was like the general use case that people were having for ChatGPT? Just was it writing stories? Many of them, it was writing stories because, you know, initially they thought they could use it for other things. Who doesn't want to plagiarize other than because the law actually doesn't allow you to do that? You know, it's more efficient for most people. I mean, look at the students and that's the, the challenge we had. By the way, not everyone wants to plagiarize. That was meant to be a joke. No. <laughs> but the idea is uh, it chat GDP makes things easier for most people. And journalists wanted to take advantage of that. They don't want to sit down and continue writing a story uh, or change a story that reporting about a different country where they are not. It was easy for them to just take ChatGDP and say, ChatGDP, write this for me. And especially for the media outlets like Mwerwan to that are not so much restricted by government rules. So first I noticed that most like government media, most journalists in the government media are kind of older, you know, of an older generation. And I think they're a little bit reluctant in learning how to use generative AI. And these bloggers, people that own their own media or people that are freelancers were more open to using these generative AI tools. So that was the difference. So like government media journalists would say, no, I think we still follow the traditional approach. And then they said, no, we are just excited about, you know, using this and that. Were they talking about how quickly now they were able to produce uh, content and reach their audience quicker? How were they seeing the possibility of Chad GPT as a potential to reach a wider audience, really? So basically, that was the, the idea from the beginning. They thought that was, is what would happen. But then they were disappointed because ChatGDP did not operate as it was supposed to. One example somebody gave was that they wanted to write a story about uh, the president of Zambia abolishing death penalty, which I think was a big story. But that story was mostly reported in Zambia and maybe one or two other countries. So when they put, they asked ChatGDP to do that, ChatGDP uh, gave a report that sounded like Wikipedia. But it wasn't, there wasn't enough content to rely on. So when they looked at it, they said, I think I can write something better than ChatGDP. And that has been the experience. And I also gave an example where, you know, one journalist wanted to write again, they're from Uganda. And I think what we know about Uganda is the president is uh, pushing against, you know, homosexuality and things of the kind. This is what is happening. And they wanted to write a story about that. It's ChatGDP could not actually allow them to do that. It wanted to take a different narrative. Not suggesting anything, but I think that tells us what ChatGDP can tell you to do and what it cannot tell you to do. So there wasn't much information they would get. And it's the same with you know questions of democracy. If you want to write, say you want to tell the ChatGDP to write a good story about one character that everyone knows as a bad guy, ChatGDP is not going to do that. Yeah, I found that example really interesting in the way you had phrased it, that ChatGPT would never help write something that is against Western narratives. That's what the journalist said. And ChatGPT tells you what is right and what it thinks is right. And that's what it's really outputting. So that really brings me into my kind of next point about the stereotypes that you were, your journalists that you interviewed were encountering regarding ChatGPT. A lot of them were saying that they 
tended to see that African countries were portrayed in a negative spotlight and having questions all about anecdotes with poverty, disease, corruption. Could you talk to me more about how ChatGPT has all of these embedded social stereotypes and what really were the journalists encountering when they were trying to write stories with that? Yeah, so basically what they said, they did actually acknowledge that first ChatGDP attempted to be positive. You know, so like one thing they would say, say, oh, tell me about this country. It will start with a good story to tell them how beautiful Africa is, you know, how beautiful that country is. But they were disappointed that at the end of the story, there will still be these highlights of, let's say, poverty, disease, corruption, you know, like because those are the things that have characterized Africa for many, many years. So it wasn't really talking about what is happening there. I mean, it would in a positive light, but there's always a point of reference to those things. And they thought, I think this is biased and stereotypical of uh, generative AI. That's really interesting because I think it's something that all of us just using ChatGPT need to be careful about in terms of just these embedded stereotypes that are just there within this generative AI models and how it could just very seamlessly come about in a text that is generated, right? And so how do we kind of move forward for these AI tools? What do you see should happen in order for these AI tools to have more of a cultural understanding, to be able to tell stories that really are reflecting global perspectives? And what should we as global journalists really need to be aware of? You know, one of the challenges I I actually noticed was also with our governments in Africa. Most governments still have their data in their traditional libraries. You know, they would have the newspapers, like, for example, the government of Zambia. I'm using the government of Zambia because I'm from Zambia. They have a national media, yet it's really difficult to find even a news story, a current news story on their website because the website does not work. You know, so what becomes more effective is these bloggers and sometimes, you know, individuals who just write information. And many of them are supported by NGOs or the West, you know. Maybe they are told, oh, you have to report on, let's say, LGBTQ or, say, maybe democracy. But these are mostly Western perspectives. So my point is, who is creating data for generative AI? You know, it's not the governments. You know, the governments have little influence on what actually gets into the database. So the information we have might not be the most accurate information or might not be the information that most governments want to be in such kind of uh, databases, which I don't think most governments realize. You know, they say, let's just let it be. But, you know, I think it's a big thing. The governments need to actively participate or actively engage in the creation and design of uh, the kind of information that goes into the, the, the database. Then the second thing that I talked about is, you know, the question of civil and uncivil or incivility. I think... The designers have to give room to the other cultures to participate in a way they want to participate, as opposed to just the Western way of doing things. You know, certain words, certain languages considered uncivil, even in terms of protests online, as I talk to most people, because it does not conform to Western standards. So what that means is that that content does not go online. The first thing, because to be flagged by Facebook, Facebook and WhatsApp are the main platforms that people use. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So it doesn't get into the database. What gets into this database is just, you know, standardized language, Western style language in short. And it also, this I think goes, it's mirrored in journalists as well. When I talked to them, they said, you know, they don't, they have no time to tolerate language that is not clear. And when, when they say it's not clear, they mean maybe language that has uh, code switches. And that's how we speak in most cultures. You don't just speak clear English. You know, you use your mother tongue language, then you add some English or sometimes you use the cultural context, which to many people might not make sense. And hence, all that does not get into the database. So what gets into the database is something that is still organized within the framework of the West. You know, journalists, African journalists might be participating, but most of them are working for NGOs. Most, and hence, the content that gets into the database becomes West. So... The biggest thing I think is like, you know, uh, governments, African governments have to realize that it's important to participate in the creation of data, you know. And then the second thing is, I think, I don't know how this is an ethical concern. We need to participate in designing our own databases, you know, because ChatGDP relies on database. So it's not, let, let it not just be formal language, but also informal language. I know they're trying to actually do that but it's not enough. You know, they're trying to do that for languages that are famous. Swahili, for example. But there, Africa has a lot of languages and there are many others that are developing, which I think we can really add to that. And the only way we do that is to actually actively engage the local people because they are using ChatGTP already. They're using Facebook. They are creating in one way or other databases. I really found that entire issue that you highlighted about the lack of data, specifically from African people not making it into the database and that limited corpus that ChatGPT is really working on as a result that perpetuates that Western bias. And so I really want to understand more about really the differences between the civil and uncivil language that you're talking about. Can you give me really an example of what you mean by that? And how is ChatGPT not getting those nuances correctly? What would you like it to be? Yeah, so, you know, we speak differently, not just in terms of language, but in the way we actually present the cultural artifacts, you know, or cultural language. I'll give an example. I know this is extreme. But, you know, in some cultures, it's easy for somebody, they're joking and say, you, I'll kill you. They don't mean that they'll kill you. So if, let's say, something like that is posted, it's automatically flagged. But also that goes to things like, you know, cultures say in some cultures in Africa, bare breast is not nudity. So it's a, a cultural thing. People are expressing themselves, which is different. I mean, they, in Africa, let's say, being in a, a swimming costume is probably more nudity than bare breast. 
you know, women actually do uh, breastfeed in a, on a bus and no one actually is concerned about that. But, you know, in short, all those things are still not so much considered as part of culture. They are flagged. You know, it's okay. You can walk in your underwear and that's not nudity, but you cannot breastfeed in public. So those differences are what actually push us towards Western perspectives, you know, of Western standards. Because when we bring in our own cultures, when we bring in the way we speak, when we use code switch language, that's uncivil, but to the Western standards. So can there be a context that is just, you know, reflecting and allowing people to participate or express themselves in the way they have always expressed themselves as opposed to learning civility as the West want? Yeah, and I found it interesting, this theme throughout your paper of data as the new form of colonization that was being mentioned. Could you really talk to me more about that and how would you see the future really looking like in African countries? So, yeah, you know, I also talked about agency uh, in the sense that, you know, we need to actively participate in the whole process, not just of the design, but also, you know, in creating what has to be there. I joke that the funny part is most people that are in tech, those design tech, actually have a a Global South background. We have a lot of people from India working that, a lot of people from Nigeria, a lot of people from China. The question is, how do we forget to add, you know, the cultural context and just stick to the Western context? So that is still a paradox to me. I don't know how that happens. But, you know, in perpetuating the standards of the West, we are also kind of killing our own standards. You know, in the next, let's say, 20, 30 years, or maybe even sooner, we won't be seeing things that we've considered African. And I think, what is it? Who are we without our identity? You know, it becomes bad. I think the beauty of whatever place, whatever country, whatever continent is the diversity diversity in food, diversity in the way people speak. And I think if we appreciate all those contexts and we also acknowledge that what they are doing is important, even if we do not agree with it, then we need to actually safeguard that. And this is not happening in most African countries. Technology, yes, like generative AI, people argue that it's uh, neutral, you know, but it's about what it carries and where it pushes people that makes it a question of uh, colonization, of neocolonialism, you know, and there should be a deliberate effort to deconstruct such kind of uh, narratives that inform what it is. Mlambi Sabelo wrote a very good piece on uh, the Ubuntu and uh, relationality, and he also pointed to some of the things that we need to do, and some are mirrored in my paper, you know, like where we just have to do a deliberate thing. I know this is an ethical thing, there's no legal... Uh, context to this, you know, but it calls for everyone and especially those that are actually designing technology to realize that we need more input from outside the Western context. And I think that's what makes it beautiful as opposed to just the name normal standards. This is a really interesting perspective of as content becomes more AI generated, people use all of these AI tools, being aware of all of those stereotypes and bias, if it's just coming from a Western perspective, kind of homogenizes all of the perspectives. And that's really what your research was kind of talking about and it's finding so far, right? And I want to delve more into with journalists who are currently using it in your research, 
what kind of issues related to plagiarism and misinformation, how aware were they of all of these different issues and how concerned were they of using AI tools? So the question of misinformation came in, you know, and uh, it was a concern, but it's most of us sometimes do not know or it's hard for us to know what is happening somewhere else. We mostly rely, let's say, other news sources, but we also know that most news sources are biased. It's hard for me to write any story about Russia because, one, I don't understand the language and all kind of stuff. So the question, if let's say I used uh, ChatGDP to write a story about Russia, to what extent is it going to be giving me accurate information? You know, so there's that level of uh, perpetuated misinformation, which actually is embedded within the design or it's embedded within other powerful media outlets or cultures that want us to take one single narrative as opposed to the other. But one thing that I think I was happy about was uh, the question of uh, plagiarism, which they said, you know, it's, it's, not, it's almost impossible to plagiarize. And the reason was because they were actually writing. It's hard for ChatGDP, like I said, to write something that is local because there was nothing about it. I mean, there's a temptation of actually plagiarizing with ChatGDP, but it, at this stage, I think it's difficult. Unless you're writing an international news story, let's say for BBC or anything else, which is also very difficult for you to do using ChatGTP because they already have the information out there. So most of them wanted to write stories, local stories, or maybe a story of their neighboring country. You know, say like giving going back to Zambia, when the president, President Haka in the Ichilema, you know, abolished death penalty. Some other countries wanted to write about that, but they couldn't. Why? Because there wasn't enough information. The easiest would have been, you know, to go to the country and report on that, but it's also very difficult. One, Zambia was not active. I mean, it did write something, but there wasn't enough information about it for other countries to collect and write something. So like I said, what GDP was doing was just, you know, spitting out something that looked like a Wikipedia story. And most people, I mean, you can get information, but most information on Wikipedia also is limited in the sense that it doesn't give you the whole context. So that's a disappointment to them, but it's a blessing in disguise in the sense that they can't plagiarize. They don't trust ChatGDP as efficient enough to give them what they want. So kind of brings me to my next point about there's been a lot of concern, especially in the Western world, about are, is AI going to be taking away the job of journalists? But it seems like from your research, a lot of the journalists have been embracing AI and chat GPT and using it for their work. Have they been as concerned? Has that concern been something that has been quite prevalent in that region? At the moment, no. You know, I think a couple of years ago, I did a study on uh, just technology itself. And some of the questions I asked were their perspective on new technologies and the migration from traditional to digital media, yes, that affected them. But at the same time, I think it uh, helped the media outlets. It was expensive to print and, you know, ship all these papers in different places. Now they just had to, you know, send a digital copy to a different country and they had people to sub people subscribing to that. But then they still had to keep some other papers out there because they do not just rely on um, subscriptions, there are still people that read and more people actually here in the West is mostly old, old people, sorry, using that word, that read newspapers. But there, even young people are still buying. Why? Because not everyone has access to, to the internet. So some lost jobs, but some found it more efficient 
and the positives actually outweighed the negatives when it came to that. But when it comes to generative AI at the moment, I don't think anyone is scared that it's going to actually take over their jobs. You know, we I've seen in other parts of the world where they have this uh, generative AI writing news stories and even presenting such kind of news stories. I know we're almost rushing at the same speed in technology, but I don't think we've reached that stage yet. And mostly it's because our databases are not representative. And it will take time for new technologies to accommodate all the different databases for us to tell a story. Yes, we could have somebody or maybe AI actually read an international news story. But it, that, I mean, we ha- we've had people, journalists with such kind of jobs, but that's not the only job they have because most of the time we monitor BBC News. You know, we just uh, infuse it into our reports. So it will help, but no one, I don't think anyone would, at this stage, I know it's an overstatement, I don't think it's really a threat to most journalists. Yeah, and with all of these issues that you've been mentioning, specifically with Chad GPT in relation to the African continent abroad, at this current stage, can the Global South really effectively and fairly use all of these AI tools? What's your perspective on that? Effectively, yes. Uh, fairly, no. You know, in the sense that, you know, I think most journalists, for example, that I asked, are using AI for grammar. So they think it is really helping them. They, they don't have to spend a lot of time to rewriting the story or sending it to the editor. They are still doing that, but I think it's still, it comes out very clean just from the first reporter in the sense that once they write, I think AI is able to correct those things. So that was the challenge. You know, we, most countries in Africa, like in Zambia, we speak English, but it's different kind of English. So to make it or meet the standards, I think there's a lot of work that was required from the journalists and from the editors, such that they don't make any typos or any errors in their stories. And ChatGDP has been very helpful in that manner. And most of the journalists are using ChatGDP specifically for that, as opposed to you know generating stories by itself. So I think that's where you know the efficiency is coming in. But in terms of fairness, I think we still need more to really claim that we are fairly or ChatGDP is being fair in the way journalists are using it in sub-Saharan Africa. This has been really just an interesting perspective that I have not been able to get a lot of information on. So it's been such a very insightful conversation for me. And kind of wrapping everything up, one of the major things I've taken away from this entire conversation is that AI and journalism in the sub-Saharan region is really having a more increasing role. And these rapid advancements of technologies are really pushing the boundaries of probably what we previously thought could be possible. And journalism, the industry has kind of not been untouched by its influence. So given your extensive research in this field, how do you see journalism evolving in the sub-Saharan region now with the increased use and development of AI tools? What will the future look like? First, it's really hard to make a clear prediction because we are at a stage where I know governments do care, you know, they do the censorship and surveillance, but we are at a stage where almost anyone can create content. It's easy now. I've seen people that have become, you know, influencers and they have like maybe 10 million people, followers, and they're just on Facebook. You know, they create some news, they do all that things. And one example I gave was the Mwebantu Media, which was started by a young guy several years ago in Zambia, and it has grown into something bigger than the government media. The challenge is that, you know, 
influencers or people that would claim as journalists. I mean, I still call them journalists because they do a great job, but um, they'll have great influence in decision making, you know, in policies, you know, like these people can actually meddle into uh, politics, you know, voting behavior. And the difference is that, you know, these are not celebrities that people can endorse. And we know that, oh, this is a celebrity. When they say this, maybe they are paid. These are just ordinary people. Maybe they're just young in one place and they have a narrative that they throw out there. And sometimes, as we saw in Ghana, these people are used by governments or by the opposition say, oh, send this message. And because you have 10 million people, then your message can get to most people. So, yes, we, we're seeing a lot of people being able, especially young people, using generative AI because I think they are tech-savvy compared to the older generation. And that, I think, is something that we need to, to be considerate, especially governments really need to see or look into that as something serious, as opposed to all oh, people are just... I mean, I'm not suggesting people should not express themselves that what public sphere is and what the internet is. But I think, again, I go back to the point I made, the government should actively participate in organizing what actually represents a country as opposed to anyone, you know, who feels inspired by the spirit. Thank you. Yeah, this has been such an interesting conversation, really, to get this, as I said, very much needed perspective, really, on how people apart from the Western world have been using generative AI. What are the issues that I've been facing? And I've taken away so many insights and learned so much from your research. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and talking about all of this. And thank you so much for educating us on all of these different perspectives. Thank you so much. I know, you know, there's a lot to talk about and I keep talking and talking because ideas continue coming, you know. It's also very fascinating to me and uh, also thank you for giving me this opportunity to to actually share some of the ideas and I hope some people pick one or two things. Yes, absolutely. I have taken away a lot of insights. So thank you so much for joining us on the Newsroom Robots, Greg. It's been lovely having you. Appreciate that. Thank you. That was Dr. Gregory Gondway. Assistant Professor of Journalism Studies at California State University, San Bernardino, and a Harvard Visiting Scholar with the Institute for Rebooting Social Media at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Spark Grant from the Harvard Innovation Labs. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots.